Chapter Thirteen of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chad. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Thirteen. The Killing of Rene d'Avril seemed to Campton one of the most senseless crimes the war had yet perpetrated. It brought home to him far more vividly than the distant death of poor Jean Fortin. What an incalculable sum of gifts and virtues went to make up the monster's daily meal. Ah, you want genius, do you? Mere use not enough, and health and gaiety and courage. You want brains in the bud imagination and poetry ideas all folded up in their sheath it takes that does it to tempt your jaded appetite he was reminded of the rich bulgarians who will eat only things out of season that's what war is like he muttered savagely to himself the next morning he went to the funeral with mrs talkett between whom and himself the tragic episode had created a sort of impoverished intimacy. Walking at her side, through the November rain, behind the poor hearse with the tricolour over it, at the church, while the few mourners shivered in a damp side chapel, he had time to study the family. A poor sobbing mother, two anemic little girls, and a lame sister who was musical. A pietist group, smelling of poverty and tears, Behind them, to his surprise, he saw the curly brown head and short-sighted eyes of Bolston. Compton wondered at the latter's presence. Then he remembered the friends of French art, and concluded that the association had probably been interested in Père d'Avril. With some difficulty he escaped from the thanks of the mother and sisters, and picked up a taxi to take Mrs. Talkett home. No, back to the hospital, she said. A lot of bad cases have come in, and I'm on duty again all day. She spoke as if it were the most natural thing in the world, and he shuddered at the serenity with which women endure the unjurable. At the hospital, he followed her in. The Davril family, she told him, had insisted that they had no claim on his picture, and that it must be returned to him. Mrs. Talkett went up to fetch it, and Campton waited in one of the drawing-rooms. A step sounded behind him, and another nurse came in. But was it a nurse, or some hallowed nun from the Umbrian triptych, her pure oval framed in white, her long fingers clasping a book and lily? Madame de Dolmetsch, he cried, and thought, a new face again, what an artist. She seized his hands. I heard from dear Madge Talkett that you were here, and I've asked her to leave us together. She looked at him with ravished eyes, as if just risen from a penitential vigil. Come, please, into my little office. You didn't know that I was the infirmière major. My dear friend, what upheavals, what cataclysms. I see no one now. All my days and nights are given to my soldiers. She glided ahead on noiseless sandals to a little room where a bowl of jade filled with gardenias and a tortoise-shell box of gold-tipped cigarettes stood on a desk among torn and discoloured livres 
militaire. The room was empty, and Madame de Dolmetsch, closing the door, drew Campton to a seat at her side. So close to her, he saw that the perfect lines of her face were flawed by marks of suffering. The woman really has a heart, he thought, or the war couldn't have made her so much handsomer. Madame de Dolmetsch leaned closer. A breath of incense floated from her conventional draperies. I know why you came, she continued. You were good to that poor little Davril. She clutched Campton suddenly with a blue-veined hand. My dear friend, can anything justify such horrors? Isn't it abominable that boys like that should be murdered? That some senile old beast of a diplomatist should decree after a good dinner that all we love best must be offered up? She caught his hands again. Her liturgical scent enveloped him. Campton, I know you feel as I do. She paused, pressing his fingers hard, her beautiful mouth trembling. For God's sake, tell me, she implored, how you've managed to keep your son from the front. Campton drew away, red and inarticulate. I, my son, those things depend on the authorities. My boy's health, he stammered. Yes, yes, I know. Your George is delicate, but so is my Ladislas dreadfully. The lungs, too. I've trembled for him for so long, and now at any moment. Two tears gathered on her long lashes and rolled down. At any moment he may be taken from the war office, where he's doing invaluable work, and forced into all that blood and horror. He may be brought back to me like those poor creatures upstairs, who are hardly men any longer. Mere vivisented animals, without eyes, without faces, she lowered her voice and drew her lips together, so that her very eyes seemed to be whispering. Ladislas has enemies who are jealous of him. I could give you their names. At this moment, someone who ought to be at the front is intriguing to turn him out and get his place. Oh, Campton, you've known this terror. You know what one's nights are like. Have pity. Tell me how you managed. He had no idea of what he answered or how he finally got away. Everything that was dearest to him, the thought of George, the vision of the lad dying upstairs, was defiled by the monstrous coupling of their names with that of the supple middle-aged adventurer safe in his spotless uniform at the war office. And beneath the boiling up of Campton's disgust, a new fear lifted his head. How did Madame de Dolmetsch know about George? And what did she know? Evidently there had been foolish talk somewhere. Perhaps it was Mrs. Brandt, or perhaps Fortin himself. All these great doctors forgot the professional secret with some one woman, if not with many. Had not Fortin revealed to his own wife the reason of Campton's precipitate visit? The painter escaped from Madame de Dolmetsch's scented lair, and from the sighs and sounds of the hospital, in a state of such perturbation that for a while he stood in the street wondering where he had meant to go next. He had his own reasons for agreeing to the Davril's suggestion that the picture should be returned to him, and presently the reasons came back. They'd never dare to sell it themselves, but why shouldn't I sell it for them, he had thought, remembering their denuded rooms and the rusty smell of the woman's mourning. It cost him a pang to part with a study of his boy, but he was in a superstitious and expiatory mood, and eager to act on it. 
he remembered having been told by bolston that the friends of french art had their office in the ballet royal and he made his way through the deserted arcades to the door of a once famous restaurant behind the plate glass windows young women with rolled up sleeves and straw in their hair were delving in packing cases while divided from them by an impoverished partition another group were busy piling on the cloakroom shelves garments such as had never before dishonoured them campton stood fascinated by the sight of the things these women were shorting pink silk combinations sporting ulsters in glaring black and white checks straw hats weathered with last summer's sunburnt flowers high-heeled satin shoes split on the instep and fringed and bulged garments that suggested obsolete names like dolman and mantle and looked like the costumes dug out of a country-house attic by amateurs preparing to play cast was it possible that the friends of french art proposed to clothe the families of fallen artists in these prehistoric properties bolston appeared flushed and delighted and with straw in his hair also and led his visitor up a corkscrew stair they passed a room where a row of people in shabby mourning like that of the davril family sat on restaurant chairs before a caissier's desk and at the desk campton saw miss anthony her veil pushed back and a card catalogue at her elbow listening to a young woman who was dramatically stating her case bolston saw campton's surprise and said yes we're desperately short-handed and miss anthony has deserted her refugees for a day or two to help me to straighten things out his own office was in a faded cabinet particulier where the diner table had been turned into a desk and the weak springed divan was weighed down under suits of ready-made clothes bearing the label of a wholesale clothier these are the things we really give them but they cost a lot of money to buy bolston explained on the divan sat a handsomely dressed elderly lady with a long emaciated face and red eyes who rose as they entered bolston spoke to her in an undertone and led her into another cabinet where campton saw her tragic figure sink down on the sofa under a glass scrawled with amorous couplets that was madame Bousset. you didn't recognize her poor thing her youngest boy is blind his eyes were put out by a shell she is very unhappy and she comes here and helps now and then Bousset. we never see him he's only our honorary president bolston obviously spoke without afterthought but campton felt the sting he too was on the honorary committee poor woman what the young fellow who did cubist things i hadn't heard he remembered the cruel humour that Bousset, when his glory began to wane had encouraged his three sons in three different lines of art so that there might always be a Bousset in the fashion you must have to listen to pretty ghastly stories here he said the young man nodded and campton with less embarrassment than he had expected set forth his errand in that atmosphere it seemed natural to be planning ways of relieving misery and bolston at once put him at his ease by looking pleased but not surprised you mean to sell the sketch sir that will put the davrils out of anxiety for a long time and there in a bad way as you saw bolston undid the parcel with a respectful may i 
and put the canvas on a chair. He gazed at it for a few moments, the blood rising sensitively over his face till he reached his tight ridge of hair. Campton remembered what George had said of his friend's silent admirations. He was glad the young man did not speak. When he did, it was to say with a business-like accent, We're trying to get up an auction of pictures and sketches, and if we could lead off with this. It was Campton's turn to redden. The possibility was one he had not thought of. If the picture were sold at auction, Anderson Brandt would be sure to buy it. But he could not say this to Bolston. He hesitated, and the other, who seemed quick at feeling his way, added at once, but perhaps you'd rather sell it privately? In that case, we should get the money sooner. It was just the right thing to say, and Campton thanked him and picked up his sketch. At the door he hesitated, feeling that it became a member of the honorary committee to add something more. How are you getting on? Getting all the help you need? Bolston smiled. We need such a lot. People have been very generous. We've had several big sums, but look at those ridiculous clothes downstairs. We get boxes and boxes of such rubbish. And there are so many applicants and such hard cases. Take those poor Davrils, for instance. The lame Davril girl has a talent for music, plays the violin. Well, what good does it do her now? The artists are having an awful time. If this war goes on much longer, it won't be only at the front they'll die. Ah, Campton said, well, I'll take this to a dealer. On the way down, he turned in to greet Miss Anthony. She looked up in surprise, her tired face hallowed in thumbling hairpins. But she was too busy to do more than nod across the group about her desk. At his offer to take her home, she shook her head. I'm here till after seven. Mr. Bolson and I are nearly snowed under. We've got to go down presently and help unpack. And after that, I'm due at my refugee canteen at the Nord. It's my night shift. Campton, on the way back to Montmartre, fell to wondering if such excesses of altruism were necessary or a mere vain overflow of energy. He was terrified by his first close glimpse of the ravages of war and the efforts of the little band struggling to heal them seemed pitifully ineffectual. No doubt they did good here and there, made a few lives less intolerable, but how the insatiable monster must laugh at them as he spread his red havoc wider. On reaching home, Campton forgot everything at sight of a letter from George. He had not had one for two weeks, and this interruption, just as the military meals were growing more regular, had made him anxious, but it was the usual letter, brief, cheerful, inexpressive. Apparently there was no change in George's situation, nor any wish on his part that there should be. He grumbled humorously at the dullness of his work and the monotony of life in a war zone town, and wondered whether, if this sort of thing went on, there might not soon be some talk of leave, and just at the end of his affectionate and unsatisfactory two pages, Campton lit on a name that roused him. I saw a fellow who'd seen Benny Upshur yesterday on his way to the English front. The young lunatic looked very fit. You know he volunteered in the English army when he found he couldn't get into the French. He's likely to get all the fighting he wants. It was a relief to know that someone had seen Benny Upshur lately. 
The letter was about four days old, and he was then on his way to the front. Probably he was not yet in the fighting he wanted, and one could, without remorse, call up an unmutilated face and clear blue eyes. Campton, rereading the postscript, was struck by a small thing George had originally written. I saw Benny Upshur yesterday, and had then altered the phrase to I saw a fellow who'd seen Benny Upshur. There was nothing out of the way in that. It simply showed that he had written in haste and revised the sentence. But he added, the young lunatic looked very fit. Well, that too was natural. It was the fellow who reported Benny as looking fit. The phrase was rather elliptic, but Campton could hardly have said why it gave him the impression that it was George himself who had seen Upshur. The idea was manifestly absurd, since there was the length of the front between George's staff town and the ferry pit, yawning for his cousin. Campton laid aside the letter with the distinct wish that his son had not called Benny Upshur a young lunatic. End of chapter 13 Recording by Chad